0: All right, let's pray before we open the word this evening. Father, we do pray that you would open this word to us this evening, that you would teach us your truths, that you would sow eternal truths in our hearts, and that they would well up to produce fruit, even as we spoke of this morning, for your glory and praise. Teach us your ways, O God, in Christ's name. Daniel chapter nine. This is the holy inerrant word of God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely. Seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. O Israel, has transgressed your law. and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins, and for the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, "No, oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Speak to God. Amen. Daniel 9. uh, It is one of the more confusing chapters In the scriptures, it has caused an awful lot of debate over the centuries, especially over the last couple of centuries. There's been a lot of ink that's been spilled over it. A lot of disagreement has emerged over it. but A lot of comfort has been derided from it as well. And I want to see some of that tonight as we open this chapter together. But before we do so, I want you to look back at the end of chapter 8 the end of chapter 8, we see there that Daniel, as he says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. You remember in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel had just had a vision of this goat, and then also of this sheep, and the goat who had one horn, and then one broken horn, that then out of that one broken horn, four more horns came out of that one broken horn, and that goat, as it were, knocked over the ram, or the sheep, with those horns as he struck that ram, and then, as Daniel says, he trampled him underfoot, quite a vision that he had, kind of nightmarish vision, he was having Visions like that, I might say, Lord, enough with the visions. Uh, and Daniel says in verse 27 that he was overcome and he lay sick for some days. He was sick from having had this vision, sick enough to be bedridden for two days. A prophet kind of calling in sick. Maybe it's time to look for a new vocation if that's what occurs, but not Daniel. What I want us to first see this evening is that Daniel, as we've seen throughout this book, is just this ever-faithful man of God. He's ever-faithful to God. His life continues to be instructive in that way. As a faithful person of God who believes in the sovereignty of God, he does two things. When he is so sick, he can't even get off of his bed. He turns to the Word of God and he turns to the God of the Word in prayer. That's our first point this morning, building upon, this evening, building upon our sermon this morning. The faithful person of God who believes in the sovereignty of God turns to God in Word and prayer. He's disturbed in his mind. He's disturbed in his heart. He, he can't even rest. He can't sleep. Now, when we are often in such a state, we're prone to wander and to run from God. I don't know why. Surely it's a trick and a tool of our adversary. So we give in to the flesh. It's we doubt His care and His concern for us as we're troubled. The very means that He's given to us in times of trouble is what we are to turn to and when the troubles in ministry in the church, or disappointments, or confusion, or sorrow, we're to turn to God in His Word and turn to God in prayer, and that's what Daniel does here. He turns to the Lord in His Word. He opens up the Book of Jeremiah and he reads. He was no doubt looking for answers. He was trying to figure out what these visions were about. And I don't think he was simply bedridden because he was distressed about the violence of his vision. He had seen worse in his visions. I don't think he was distressed by this vision because he was concerned that it didn't have any kind of real meaning. He knew who had given him this vision Rather, I think he was bedridden because he was distressed over what this meant for the people of God. He was concerned about the nation of Israel, and so his heart's cry, along with every other Jew of this time, the entire nation, was one of When, O oh Lord? When is this finally going to cease? When are you going to bring your people back from exile? When. Are you going to turn back this calamity that has fallen upon us, that has devastated your people? When are you going to return us to the land, to the city of Jerusalem? How long, O Lord? He said that in chapter 8, verse 13. For how long, for how long must we endure this? And so he opens up his Bible. Isn't that interesting? He's a prophet who receives visions from God. Yet he knows that he needs to rely upon the written word. He goes to the Bible. He opens up the Bible. He clearly opens up Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 2. This is the passage that he reads. It is these verses. I quote This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Here's the answer. How long, O oh Lord? Well, here's your answer, Jeremiah, 70 years. And you'll notice Daniel's response to understanding the word of God. He, he turns in prayer to the God of the word. Verse 3. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayers and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, ever the faithful man of God. He turns to the Word of God, and he turns to the God of the Word in prayer. Before we look at the prayer, which is what I want to spend most of our time on this evening, I want you to notice what he does. What moves him? This 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 word. I think he sees in Jeremiah that God has prophesied and even decreed that this would happen in seventy years. He he knows that the word is unfailing. He knows that it's fixed. He knows that it can't be done undone. The truth is guaranteed. And yet, Daniel still goes to the Lord in prayer about this very thing. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that instructive? So second, notice that the sovereignty of God does not stymie prayer, but encourages prayer. He sees the promise in Scripture, and it doesn't halt him from praying. It drives him to pray. He knows that God has decreed this. And so he doesn't run the other direction. He doesn't just go about other business. He goes down upon his knees. And what does he pray? He prays the very thing he saw in the Word. This is one of the longest prayers in all of the Scriptures right here in Daniel 9. And it's a prayer according to the word of God. It's all the response to gaining knowledge from God's word and that from that knowledge of God's word, that then informs his prayers to the God of the word. Daniel does the calculation in his head, and he realizes that the day is coming soon. If we do the math, Daniel most likely carried away in that major carrying off of young men by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed a little later in 586 B.C. We know, as Daniel says here, this being the first year of Darius the Medes' reign, that he began to reign in 538 B.C., so that is 48 or so years after the destruction of Jerusalem, but it would have been 67 years from... Daniel's deportation with the rest of the young men to Babylon. And it seems that Daniel would date the date that God is talking about from the deportation that he and his friends experienced from Babylon because in many ways that was the far more significant event, the one that affected his life demonstrably. So he knew. He knew that in three years, God would allow people to return back to the land, that in three years Jerusalem would begun to be rebuilt and this prophecy would be fulfilled. The exile would be over. And that knowledge of God's sovereign decree does not stymie prayer in Daniel, but encourages prayer. Why? Because he understands that mysteriously, in God's will, And according to his decree, he uses our prayers to accomplish his will. And so we praise according to that will. Prayers are not tangential to the will of God, but the very means he uses to accomplish his will. And so Daniel prayed. And you'll notice that the sovereignty of God not only doesn't stymie prayer, encouraging prayer, but it encourages fervent prayer. Daniel says he pled with God. He fasted and he put on sackcloth and ashes. This was not simply going through the motions kind of prayer. God, you've already decreed it. So let me pay a little lip service. No. He's fasting. He's putting on sackcloth. He's putting ashes on his head. He is praying fervently that God's will would be done. Why? Because one can pray what one sees as promised in the scriptures without restraint. We know this is the will of God. And so you can pray with even more fervency. Oh, God, it is your will and so I plead with you to accomplish your will. As you promised to do. You want a more fervent prayer life? Will you pray according to the will of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Jesus taught us to pray in that model prayer. When we know the will of God, it frees us to pray fervently according to the will of God. How often our prayers should be fervent with, ah, oh Lord. Safeguard University Reformed Church, do not let the gates of hell prevail against the church. Fervently, we should pray for one another and say, ah, oh, Roger over there is so tired. Give him rest. You said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He needs your rest. Do you give him that rest. Lord, you said that you would return upon the clouds, with the angels and the archangel. Ah, Lord, return. Turn upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels and bring your people home. Lord, forgive our sins for the blood shed by our Savior on the cross. You've promised that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, take your condemnation away from us. Let us sense that and free us from it. When you pray the will of God, you can pray fervently. Because you know it to be true. So Daniel, ever the faithful man prays. I want to look at this prayer. I want to point out three things about this prayer. First, Daniel prays with God's glory as the great goal. This maybe should shape our prayer more than anything else when we believe in a sovereign God, a sovereign God of the Word. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. The Lord's Prayer begins with glorifying God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name and the request above all else. And that prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it is in heaven, a good prayer is saturated with God's glory as the great goal. And so Daniel prays, yes, Lord, return the people to the land of Jerusalem, but not just for their sake, but for your sake, O God, for what glory that would give to your name. It's your glory that's in view, all done for your glory. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We surely pray to the glory of God. This is why the world exists. This is why there are even a people that are called after his name for the glory of God. So prayer is aimed at the glory of God. Look at Daniel's prayer here, glorifying God throughout. Verse 7. Oh, to uh, Before that, O Lord, the great and awesome God, the very first verse, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse seven, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Verse nine, to the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 14, for the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works that he has done. Verse 15, let us recall his great saving work, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate for your own sake for your own glory. Verse 18: O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19: O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, pay attention and act, delay not why For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God's glory is the great goal of this prayer. It shapes his prayer. That is a good way to pray. You plead with God according to his word and plead with him that, oh, Lord, don't you see? You get the glory here. We're your people. The sheep of your pasture. You said you would make us to lie down in green pastures, that you would lead us beside still waters. Lord, would you make us to lie down? Glory that would give to you. How people would point at us and say, Look at those people. They seem to have a peace which surpasses understanding, and we could point to you and say, It is our God who gives that to us. You plead with him. The glory of God should saturate our prayer lives. But notice, for to do so, we must know the word of God. Secondly, faithful prayer to a sovereign God is informed by the word of God. Daniel reads the word and it drives him to prayer. But, but when he is in prayer, he doesn't distance himself from the word, but rather he prays the word. This, this prayer is replete with the word of God. He can pray to the glory of God because this prayer is filled with the truths of God. You want to pray better, then you read better. take the word and you read it. After you've read it, you allow that word to inform your prayer. That's what Daniel's doing. Once you your prayer is more effectual, then your mind needs to be filled more with the word of God. Third, prayer to a sovereign God is righteous prayer when it is right prayer. Daniel seeks God. And in this prayer, he recognizes who God is, and knowing who he is, he then reflects on who the people of God are. It's a right prayer, recognizing who God is and recognizing who they are, and that makes for a righteous prayer. The right prayer recognizes God and recognizes where we're at. He makes it clear throughout the prayer that God has rightly judged his people, that the distress they are in, the deportation that they've experienced, the trials that they are enduring, it is all right. It's all correct because of their sin. He recognizes that God is holy and they are not, and God must judge their sin. He does not treat sin lightly. In fact, Daniel doesn't even want God to treat it lightly. God is a holy God. And he knows that about God, but he also rightly knows, as he says, that God is a merciful God. And so he pleads with God to forgive their sins, to give them mercy. He has a right view of God, and he has a right view of them. That makes for a righteous prayer. Notice how Daniel does this. It's quite instructive. As a reminder, Daniel throughout this book has been faithful. I, I'm at a loss to find where Daniel has been wayward or he has been negligent or he has been unfaithful at all in this book up to this point. Of course, he was a sinner. None who does good, no, not even one, none are righteous. Time and again, he shows himself to be faithful to God. But when Daniel confesses the sins of God's people before God, he includes himself. It's quite instructive. He doesn't point at the people of Israel and say, forgive them, Lord. Forgive their iniquity, Lord. But rather, forgive us, Lord. We have sinned, Lord. Look at the pronouns he uses. Verse 5 we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Verse 6, we have not listened to you, to your servants, the prophets. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. We have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law. Verse 13, we have have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. Verse 14, we have not obeyed His voice. Verse 15, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. There's no pride in this man. Therefore, there's no pride in his prayer. There's no thought that he is greater than the other people in the nation this nation that He's been united with. No, they are collectively the people of God and the sins of God's people weigh heavily upon them. They are not just their sins. In a very real sense, He sees them as His own sin. They're his sin. We don't belong to a covenant nation any longer. But the covenant community is not seized belong to one another. We belong to the church. Where there's sin in the community, in a very real sense, it is our sin. The failings of the church are not just the church over there, not just their failings. The the lack of witness, the lack of fruitfulness, the lack of prayerfulness is not just a sin that belongs to others in our congregation or others in that church over there. We're united to them in Christ, and so it is our sin in one sense collectively. It's right to view it that way, to confess it that way, to pray it that way. It's one of the reasons that we have a corporate confession of sin in our morning services, where we pray together with one voice. Because I belong to you and you belong to me. Your failings are my failings. Maybe if I had been more faithful in praying for you and more faithful in ministering to you, you would not have failed the way that you failed. Maybe if you had been more prayerful for me and more faithful in ministering to me, if we had pointed each other more readily to Christ and encouraged one another more in Christ. Maybe I would not have failed. Christian life is about much more than just me and God. It's about us and God. We're united together. A faithful person of God who believes in the sovereignty of God turns to God in word and prayer and that prayer is aimed at the glory of God according to the word of God rightly informed about who God is and who we are. Who I am. And That leads to our final point. Sovereign God answers prayer, and often that answer is greater than our feeble prayers that are uttered and what we've asked for. As Daniel is praying this prayer, his lips have not closed, he has not even finished with an amen. He says in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, he says it again in verse 21 to emphasize this truth. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel came to me. God responds to Daniel even before Daniel is finished with his prayer. In fact, Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 23 that at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. God is so ready to give, so ready to give. He is, as has been said, more ready to give than we are to ask. So Gabriel just begins to utter his prayer, the first words. God's already sent a word out. And he's sending his messenger, Gabriel, down to deliver it to Daniel. Gabriel tells Daniel this word, this answer to his prayer. And I find the reason so very encouraging he says to daniel the reason god is sending this word to you is because you are greatly loved this word has the idea of being precious you, you are precious in the eyes of god a sovereign god who has decreed all things has established what so shall ever come to pass use you as precious so even you, little will you, Daniel, one small man on the face of the earth, God is sending a direct word to, because he loves you. Ah, it is good to have the favor of God, be the object of his love, to be precious to him. moved by this love God gives Daniel greater understanding verses 24 through 27 a prophecy that is given to Daniel it's an important prophecy it has had different interpretations over, over the years over the centuries i, I don't confess to know with certainty how to interpret these verses i'm going to give to you what i think is the correct interpretation of these verses um I wouldn't do so dogmatically, do so saying I am attempting to do the best of my ability. I wrestled through these verses an awful lot this week, came out of my study multiple times this week saying, Lord, I I do not understand. Uh, And then would sit back down with a bunch of books and surround myself and try and sort through it again and try and make hay of all of it. Let's try and do that together a little bit this evening in closing. This is what tomes of books have been written on these verses because they are important verses for, for prophecy and for understanding what was given, this great promise that was given to Daniel. It was prophesied that there shall be 70, 70 weeks. And over these 70 weeks, the transgressions of the people would be finished. He says. He says that, There shall, quote, be an end shall be put to sin. Atonement shall be made for those sins. And an everlasting righteousness shall be given. A a seal will be given to the vision and the prophet, meaning, I believe, Jeremiah. A a seal to the promise of Jeremiah. An anointing to the most holy place. Of course, you and I reading that on this side of Christ, we can... Very clearly see that this is a reference to Christ. As you see, atonement shall be made for those sins, that there shall be an everlasting righteousness. Let's see if we can make a little more sense out of this. You'll notice that the first three verbs answer Daniel's prayer. He he wanted the people to be forgiven. That was his prayer. That, that's the, the content of his prayer. And after these 70 weeks, God tells him it would. Finish the transgression. It would put an end to sin and it would atone for iniquity. So you have these three verbs that speak of the forgiveness of sins. Daniel's great prayer God will provide, forgiveness will be had. And as Daniel prayed, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. And, and here's the answer from God Look, I have acted, Daniel. It's decreed. It's going to happen. The second three verbs speak of God establishing his righteousness. It's not just the negative of forgiving sin that God promises, but the positive of, of granting righteousness. So he will. Quote, bring in everlasting righteousness. Daniel understands and he communicates in verses 14 and 16 that God is righteous. He understands that this righteousness must come from God. And now God promises that this righteousness, his righteousness, will be brought and given. This is what changed Martin Luther's view during that launch, of the Reformation. Romans 1, 16, and 17, that the righteousness was God's righteousness that was given to his people. And Daniel's getting a glimpse of it here. Justification by faith, an imputed righteousness that is given to you. He says he will seal both vision and prophet. This is a reference to what Daniel had read in Jeremiah. It will come to pass. It will be sealed. That is, it will be accomplished. And he says he will anoint a most holy place. We don't have specifics about what that holy place was, but I tend to believe it was a reference to Mount Calvary. Most seem to think it's the temple, but as Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here, and he is the ultimate subject of these visions and of the prophecies. Notice... What's happening here is that God is giving Daniel a bigger vision, and he's giving him a bigger answer to prayer than what he actually asked for. He says 70 weeks, and this will happen, 70 weeks is 70 times 7, or 490 years. And I take that as being a symbolic number to represent a long time, with 7 being the the kind of perfect number in Scripture. It goes all the way back to creation because God created all things in the space of that week, those seven days, six days, and then resting on the seventh. That that number seven becomes the number for completion or for perfection. So, for example, when Peter, you remember, goes to the Lord Jesus and he says, how often must we forgive our brothers? He, He goes big. Up to seven times, Lord. And that's a way of saying, ah, an awful lot. And Jesus answers him, I tell you, not just seven times, but seventy-seven times. He takes the two perfect numbers, the idea of completion, that is complete forgiveness. Daniel, there's something even bigger in view than the restoration to Jerusalem. There's a forgiveness coming that will be accompanied by an everlasting righteousness. You want to see the people restored to Jerusalem on earth. I'm going to restore Jerusalem on earth as heaven meets with earth, and it's going to be everlasting. This is the plan for all time. God is giving Daniel a view into the purposes of all of history. This isn't meant to be a math problem. So many read a number this week, so many books that are trying to figure out the math 70 times seven and four hundred and ninety years. And let's date this calculation. It's a fool's errand. It's not a math problem. He's laying out the scope of of redemptive history so Daniel can see it. It's a way of communicating from Daniel's day until the end. Here is the plan and God will achieve his plan. As we stand here today. We know that this was partially fulfilled in the coming of Christ and it will be fully consummated at the return of Christ. It, it's a it's confusing see if we can understand it together by working through the verses together. So very quickly, verse 24. The 70 weeks are decreed, it would occur. This is the entire period, the entire scope of redemptive history from Daniel's time until the end of time. And then in verse 25a, we have the first seven weeks. This is the time from the building of Jerusalem to the anointed one coming. And I believe... This reference to an anointed one is speaking of Cyrus, who sent out that decree in 538 B.C. to rebuild the city. And and this was to be an encouraging word to Daniel. Look, Daniel, this is what you're praying about. It's going to happen in the very first seven weeks. In 925B, he's told that there shall be 62 weeks following this. And during these 62 weeks, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And this will happen in the face of much opposition as we saw when we went through the book of Nehemiah earlier this year. And then we have the one week in verse 926. And it's another, I think a different anointed one shall come. This is a reference, I believe, to Christ's coming. This one that... We're told would will be cut off, that's covenantal language, as Christ is crucified in A.D. 30 or 33, depending on how you date it. In verse 27, he shall make, quote, a strong covenant with many. And you also see that in that context it says that the sacrifices cease. And then in verse 27, we see as well in that same week, that one week, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, which... I believe, occurs in 70 A.D. This quote, people of the prince, in verse 26, is, I think, a reference to the enemies who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple there in 70 A.D. when Titus, that Roman general, leads his troops into Jerusalem. He's a type of antichrist. Of which Jesus makes reference to from Daniel's prophecy in these 70 weeks when he speaks about that abomination of desolation, which comes with the destruction of Jerusalem, which we'll see later when we get at the end of Matthew in our morning services. I think he's referencing Titus coming and destroying Jerusalem. And then notice that there will be war until the end, that his conflict will continue. Out of all this prophecy, what are we to take away? I think two things I want you especially to think about tonight. One is that, as we've seen throughout this book, God has a plan and it won't be thwarted. His will is in motion. He's told Daniel what it's going to be and it comes to pass as he decreed it. It's been determined. It will not be undone. So we need not doubt. But second, notice that God's work for His glory and for His people is never empty and it's never simply negative. Daniel wants forgiveness from sins for his people. And even in that, he has a very limited view. He, he wants to see them restored to the city of Jerusalem and he wants to see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt and he wants to see them safe there. God has so much greater things to give to his people. What he promises his people and what he gives to his people ex- exceeds imagination. And he's trying to give Daniel a glimpse of that in this prophecy. Daniel, it's a good prayer, so let me answer it. But let me show you that I am even a greater father of good gifts than that. For I'm going to give you even more than what you've prayed for. And I've actually even set it in motion. You're going to see it come to pass. I hope you remember that when you pray to your father in heaven. I don't think he's not answering my prayers. He's not giving what I asked. Oh, gives exceedingly more than we ask. We just don't always understand it or always see it. He's a giver of good gifts, greater gifts than we can imagine. And one day, I think when we're in glory and all of these prophecies make complete sense, we'll be able to look back on all of these prayers that have been answered and that we've prayed will be able to say with shock probably and with unbelievable confidence, wow, are a God of greater gifts and a greater responder to prayer than I ever knew or ever understood. This is your God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a giver of good gifts to your people thankful that you are a God who hears our prayers. Help us to be a prayerful people according to your truth. In Christ's name we pray.